0: This is the, waves. This, this is is the, the waves. waves. this is the waves. This is the waves This is the waves is This is the waves. Welcome to the Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism and a brave new world where teenage girls read the same things as everybody else. Every episode, you've got a new pair of women to talk about the things we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a staff writer for Slate. And me, Heather Schwedell, a staff writer for Slate. What has happened to specialty teen and women's publications, and should we care? In the year 2000, when I graduated college, there were seven major teen magazines in print. Now there are none, and the teen magazines that still exist are limping along online. On the women's side, things aren't much better, Glamour stopped publishing the print edition in 2019, and Mary Claire's print issue, we found out a few days ago as we were preparing this episode, is also being discontinued. What are the reading populations that once turned to these publications reading for fun now, and where in contemporary media can we find their legacy? Now, this is a topic very close to my heart because I started out in media at a teen magazine called YM., And I wasn't completely happy there, but it was also a teen magazine, um, Sassy, the Great Dear Beloved Sassy, which everyone in Generation X remembers, that made me feel like I even wanted to be a magazine writer. And right now, today, I doubly want to talk about this pressing issue because Heather has just published an excellent piece on the one-time editor of Cosmogirl in 17, who now has a substack and is becoming an Instagram personality, Atusa Rubenstein. Heather, why is this topic close to your heart? I was also an avid
1: reader of teen magazines. And the time that you're talking about when you graduated college, that was when I was a preteen and and, um, early teen but there was a particular like mini boom of them. That's when Cosmo Girl started, which is the magazine that Atusa Rubenstein founded. That's when Teen People started, Elle Girl, Teen Vogue. Um, and I also used to love reading the print versions of women's magazines. It used to be so fun. Like I would look forward to riding on a plane because I would have like magazines and candy or going to the nail salon, reading a magazine, like just so luxurious and fun. And now that seems like a total anachronism. So, Atusa was sort of this mythic figure from my teen years. What really sticks with me about Atusa when I think back to then and reading her magazine, she was the editor of Cosmo Girl and then went on to 17, is her editor's letters. And in particular, she always posted these dorky photos of her. I don't know. They just looked so embarrassing to me, her photos from then. She so dorky, her haircuts, or I don't know what she was wearing. And she just, you know, put it all out there even then. And that would become a theme in her life, uh, I guess, and is relevant to what she's doing now. So something I didn't realize at the time about Atusa is she was also super successful just in her media career. And it wasn't until I was in college and sort of started starting to think maybe I wanted to work in magazines that I really understood what an achievement that was that she had founded a magazine so young. She found it when she was still in her 20s. But that's also when I was starting to feel more cynical about teen magazines, thinking I wish I had been part of the sassy generation. And I sort of wonder... What would have happened if it had been more of an option for me to work in teen or women's magazines? Like, is that a direction my career would have gone if if I were um, 10 or 15 years older?
0: And it's interesting to think about. It would have been a totally different life. I resonate with so much of that, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. And so coming up, we're going to talk about the idea that women's and teen magazines created community, which is something that people who work at women's and teen magazines would often talk about, and the idea that they supported young female writers who might not otherwise have gotten chances to have a media career. (music)
1: Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to take a second and welcome all our new listeners and our old ones, too. We haven't forgotten about you. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too. Like last week's, where hosts Emily Peck and Shannon Paulus talk about whether Disgrace Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is actually a girl boss.
0: Okay, let's talk about what teen magazines and women's magazines meant to us as young writers. So among people who do sort of miss the era of teen and women's magazines, um, there is some discussion of the idea that they're uh, like an incubator of community and a place where young female writers can kind of get a start. There's people from the mid-century era that often get mentioned in connection to this. So Sylvia Plath. Um, was published in 17, and Betty Friedan aired a bunch of her ideas for the Feminine Mystique in um, Ladies Home Journal, um, which is sort of like this unexpected counter-narrative that you find inside these magazines that were actually very much established to serve sort of like a white middle-class you know, woman who would sort of follow a very traditional path within society. But some of these starry examples aside, uh, was community and career advancement really what we got from them when they still existed? Maybe it's because I worked at one, but I just always have so much trouble with the sort of representation of teen magazines as a place where people could connect. So, for example, there's a quote from 2016 that was in a Refinery29 uh, piece that had a a bunch of good quotes around 2016 about teen magazines and this kind of nostalgia. And this quote is from the one-time Teen Vogue editor, Elaine Welteroth. And she said, for teens being part of a community that you identify with is so important. Subscribing to a print title, even in 2016, which again is when she's speaking to this reporter, uh, is like signing up for a club that serves you on a more personal level. At Teen Vogue, we have created a community for our readers to belong, to be seen and heard, to identify with the stories that we tell. Now, Heather, I wonder what you think about this, because I feel a little bit sort of like suspicious of this to some degree. And in 2018, when Seventeen shut down its print edition, I wrote a piece for Slate that was like, I'm glad teen magazines are done. (laughs) And then one of the reasons that I brought up was that I feel like they treat teen readers, teen girls as like this one community um, one sort of like, kind of person, like an American teenage girl. And because you're trying, you're always trying to sort of like pitch your magazine to advertisers, you don't ever want to say, actually, we're only going to serve a certain kind of teenage girl or whatever, like you have to always say that you're going to try to serve everybody and create a community for everybody. But honestly, looking back in 2021, I'm not actually th- sure that that's that's possible. So, Heather, as a person who, as you just said, uh, came of age during a golden age of teen magazines, did you get a feeling of community from it? And were you inspired to do to go into writing from it?
1: I would say no, or I don't know, maybe a little. But it's interesting trying to think about it. I think I I loved reading the teen magazines for sure. But a lot of it was for superficial reasons. Like, I really wanted to see the prom dresses and the pictures of celebrities. I liked, you know, photo shoots. And I even liked the ads. Like, there were ads for new hair and makeup stuff that I then wanted and would go
0: buy. Oh, yeah. And I remember that very well. St. <laughs> Ives apricot scrub. <laughs> oh, like for kind of sure.
1: Stuff. But also, my. Knee jerk reaction to you saying it's a good thing that this doesn't exist anymore is no. Like, I have so much nostalgia for reading the magazines, and I'm trying to separate out whether that's because they were important to my development in some way or whether I just liked, you know, looking at nail polish. You know, it's okay to like looking at nail polish. I don't know. I think. They should have more value uh, than just, oh, it provides a nice break from screen time. So it, it's good for you to read things that aren't your phone. But did they? The, the way that I think sassy actually had sassy writing, like funny and inspiring writing. I don't know that I really felt that about teen magazines. I mean, maybe there there was like L Girl, I thought was um, kind of different and funny. And I did... There were things in them that were influential to me, like they would recommend books. And I think I found some of my favorite books. One book in particular, I remember I loved in high school was Sloppy First. And I think I first saw that in a teen magazine. But I don't feel like they are, are what guided me towards wanting to be a writer. I think I got that more from reading Entertainment Weekly, um, even Premiere, other things.
0: So like slightly older magazines for slightly older people that were still about topics that you were interested in.
1: Yes, which was totally your argument in the piece that we shouldn't separate out what the content we give teen readers. They should just read about what they're interested in and not just read Teenage stuff. But it also matters to me that there was a magazine for teen girls. I think I thought that was so cool then. And I, you know, I think it's so cool now. And I'm not sure, like, am I a dis- dinosaur who needs to be disabused of these notions? And like, th- <laughs> thank you for doing it, Rebecca.
0: Yeah. I just want, I just want to know more about why you think it's cool. I know what you mean about that. But it's interesting because I actually just started in preparation for this podcast. I was um, been listening to the podcast, listen to Sassy, which has a couple of hosts, including Tara Ariano, who I'm a big fan of. Reading old issues of Sassy, and I started listening to it because I wanted to like just be remembered, like reminded of like what the magazine was about, and kind of like be able to like articulate a little bit better on here why I liked it so much and why I felt a sense of community from it. And it's funny because they have respect for sassy and they really like sassy, but they're also, like, very merciless (laughs) about some of, like, the parts of sassy that are, like, a little bit embarrassing in hindsight. Like, and listening to them, I'm like, I actually think that the parts of sassy that are embarrassing were embarrassing because it's, like, when something is for teenage girls, you have to, like, be a certain way, like... Sassy was, like, very, um, like, alarmist about drugs. Like, they'd be, like, you know, someone would write into the health advice column and say, can you die from, from marijuana? And then, you know, one of the writers would write back and say, well, I don't think so, but I did have a friend who, like, went to the emergency <laughs> room from smoking too much marijuana. And, like, the you know, the hosts of this podcast are like, this is preposterous. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, no, 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 that's not what happened. And, I mean, famously, Sassy was like partially brought down by attacks from the Christian right who basically hated them for implying that sex was okay which is a way that you're sort of like constrained but you know there's all kinds of other problems you could find with the magazine now the voice was still in my opinion sort of like foundational for internet writing but fundamentally it is like when i look back at it i'm like yeah it was like, quote unquote, cool, (laughs) as you put it, that there was this thing that I could read that had, like, it was just full of things that I would like. And some of the things were like cute boys, like pictures of cute boys and pictures of fashion that I liked. And some of the things were, as you said, the advertisements, because I, I think there's like a special kind of consumerism that you have as like a child and a teenager. And my own four year old daughter already kind of has it like she just likes to look at the backs of her like Lego instructional booklets and see what other Legos she could get. (laughs) And so like um, the teen magazine sort of served as that kind of like, like bastion of consumerism, like mixed together with like a bunch of like sort of vaguely interesting features. I don't know, but, but looking back on it, I'm like, was that a good, I still don't know if I think that was a good thing, but say more about why you think it was cool.
1: I think I was just always excited about the the trappings of being a teenager and a teenage girl. And I don't know, like, now I'm trying to think about why. And I'm like, no, that was toxic. I don't know. (laughs) Like, um, everything... I don't know. I thought was cool about it. Like the idea of going to prom and like boys and like having a locker in high school. Why does any of that matter? But it was something that I wanted and was really interested in. I guess I've always been drawn to coming of age stories. So, so maybe that that's part of it, especially when I was younger, but I was trying to figure out who I was and there was some element of even if in bad ways, the teen magazines were showing you how how to be a teenage girl. And I think some of that messaging was obviously not great, but maybe it it was also of comfort.
0: I think about it a lot with my own daughter because she's just sort of like absorbing, she's just falling in love with various texts. And it's like you can see how when you're sort of like a young person and a teenager, particular texts like imprint on you. And maybe it's more about like the experience, because you're a a thinking, intelligent person with like a lot of reflective capacity. So, you know, you had this like experience with a piece of media where it like imprinted on you in some weird way. And maybe now girls are having that happen with like, you know, some Instagram post that a, a star puts up that like, brands itself into their brain and they'll remember. I think the experience is still valuable. We're going to take a break here, but if you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you would like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you want to hear more from Rebecca and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today, Rebecca and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I'll be talking about the movie Now and Then, and Rebecca will be talking about 90s movie Titanic.
0: Now we're going to talk about the legacy of teen and women's magazines in the actual writing that we read. This is a key area of thought that I like to noodle around when I think about the legacy of teen magazines as a person who once wrote for one and now writes totally different stuff. And this question is a key part of Heather's Atusa profile. Atusa now has a confessional substack where she tells all kinds of stories about her life. So in 2019, there was a piece in the Washington Post by Lavanya Ramanathan about women's magazines and their decline. And I want to read one particularly good paragraph to you, Heather, and see what you think about it as a connoisseur of websites and their writing style. uh, She wrote, what women's magazines once delivered to readers from New York to Topeka to Sacramento, the girlfriend-style advice, the gospels of orgasms and equal pay, the reminders to always be dieting can now be found many places online, from the hashtag Fitspo posts on Instagram to junior feminist sites such as Jezebel, which is elbowed in on coverage of pop culture, hashtag Too, and The Workplace. Makeup bloggers and YouTube influencers now dictate the next big lipstick cover, color and how to get that no-makeup makeup look. Culinary sites like Food52, which, side note, I, Rebecca Onion, really love, have cornered what the lady rags used to call cookery, with none of the gendered notions about who does the cooking and low stakes, cheerfully unscientific personality quizzes. Now there's BuzzFeed for that. So Heather, what do you think about this idea? Do you see sort of the DNA of teen and women's magazines in the stuff that you read on the internet? And if so, where?
1: Yes, I, I think that paragraph was dead on. Um, I don't know. Do we see the influence of women's magazines in Instagram tutorials and stuff? Or is is it just that those topics are now covered in that way? Right. Like,
0: is, is it just the topic or is it also the style is the question?
1: Right. I think the style you, we can talk about more in terms of the writing. And I think one thing that I talked about a little bit in my piece is that There was this sort of moment a few years ago, like let's say circa 2012, 2013, when the personal essay became this lightning rod online. I guess if this still happens, it's still a lightning rod and it can be. But a certain type that that was pioneered by sites like ExoJane, where it would just be confessional is is the word, but the whole point would be just like reading something completely in a voyeuristic way. And it wasn't that the person learned something or there was this insider literary value. It, it was just gawking at someone who had a crazy story. And I guess one aspect of that that's sort of controversial in journalism is, you know, why did an editor not protect that woman from herself and airing that thought. And and that's something that Laura Bennett, who is an editor here at Slate, wrote about in sort of a, a seminal piece, The First Person Industrial Complex, about how one of the ways that women can get started with writing is kind of telling their worst, most revealing story about themselves and getting paid like $50 for it and instead of reporting like women can sort
0: of like sell their their narratives i mean it interests me because i mean exo jane is like a really good example because it's a direct descendant of women's magazines right like it's jane pratt's website or it was and so jane pratt was the editor of sassy and then she was the editor of jane and then she became you know then she edited exo jane and now i don't know what she's doing but Sassy, despite my listening to this podcast that has now convinced me that maybe it wasn't as good as I remember. One thing about Sassy that was like imprinted on my brain as a writer was that they, it was like the whole magazine was a first person essay. Like they basically use their writers as characters in like this ongoing story of the magazine. So all these writers were like 20 somethings in New York. And then their tastes and their interests became the magazine and for a long time, I don't know if it was always, but I think it might have been, um, they just referred to themselves in first person. So it would like their bylines would even be like, "by Margie or "by Christina. The masthead of the magazine was like the personality of the magazine. And that way of sort of using the writer as like a character or personality, like looking back at it from the viewpoint of 2021, when you have a much better Sort of chance of becoming a successful internet writer if you can also make yourself into a personality or an influencer. Well, that you can debate whether or not that proposition is correct, but and many have in various uh, essays about it. But I do think that that idea that what a writer for a teen magazine sort of had to offer in the sassy era was their own like sort of personal take on things, like their 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 actual person in a way. Um, which was sort of what Atusa was doing too to some degree as the editor, although I feel like it didn't really extend to her staff as much as it did with Sassy. But but that idea is basically the whole internet now,
1: I feel like. Mm-hmm. There's a a line in my piece, one of the people I spoke to as sort of like a media critic said that Atusa was actually very early to the influencing. Game because she was sort of an influencer before there were influencers in in developing this cult of personality around herself, and she wasn't the first editor to do that. As you said, Jane Pratt did that, and you know that goes back a little bit in the history of magazines. But in, it's interesting if if you look at what she's doing now. So she would definitely not use the word confessional because she sees what she's doing as different. And I see it as a little different too, because she, her end goal is not just to get clicks. She isn't trying to get clicks or or even subscribers. Like she's much more concerned with kind of mental health and really being honest and bearing her soul. And so Atusa, you know, was like this, super famous editor, and then just sort of left the industry and and disappeared professionally for about 15 years. And one of the reasons she did that, it turns out, is because she was dealing with a lot of trauma from her childhood uh, when she was sexually abused by a family member. And so a lot of her sub stack relates back to that. And that's not clicky, as um, I like to put it in very um, crass terms. Like she's writing about that because it matters to her sort of understanding how her life experiences, how she views so much through this lens and kind of getting to a point of self-love. But she also is sharing a lot about herself, telling a lot of very personal stories, or she started that way anyway. She has said she wants to move sort of in a new direction of sharing other people's stories and, and she's done some of that. And I think she's sort of figuring it out like it started as a substack, but maybe it'll develop into more of a community, which sort of brings us back to, to something we were discussing earlier, whether these magazines are a community. I do think that's one potential interesting avenue uh, for for her project. I think a lot of people draw a lot of value from you know, connecting in small groups online where they can maybe recreate some of what they liked about about old media, but it's also its own thing.
0: Yeah, um, we didn't get to mention it earlier, but we wanted to there's a piece in Input magazine recently among that was like the only this was like one of the only September 11 memory pieces that I I was like uh, drawn to, which is a piece by Jen Hayes about the the magazine called Teen. It's hard to say it without um, spelling it out that had a a forum that was after 9-11 populated by like a small group of girls that tried to figure out what they thought about 9-11 through this forum. And she sort of, like, excavates the different the different personalities on, on there and the people that, that she met there. And that seemed to me, like, such an interesting, like, sort of, like, piece of bridge <laughs> internet history, where it's, like, a forum that came from a teen magazine. As far as I can tell, it seemed like, the magazine was like not really trying too hard to like moderate this forum or like do very much to like help along the people who were on it. But in some organic way, it like coalesced into this group where she actually like sort of learned a lot about politics and like figured out even through disagreeing with people, like what she sort of thought about the event, which is like this like sort of best case scenario maybe (laughs) for what can happen from, from these things. But I just really enjoyed that piece as like a description of, what could actually happen if the communities that come from this kind of media, like, actually coalesce?
1: And I think that piece was really good at maybe articulating a feeling I was trying to talk about before about she looks back, she finds some of the actual posts she wrote as a teen, and she's like, "These are factually inaccurate, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. But like now I see that I was kind of trying to work these things out. And I thought her perspective was really valuable,
0: yeah, yeah the the message board was called Terrible Tuesday, which is just like too perfect, like the way that a uh, teen magazine. Uh, I mean, this used to be me, so I can say this. Like, we just always <laughs> had to struggle to, like, try to, um, you know, put cute headlines on the stuff in the magazine that was, like, more serious, which is actually still a very Internet problem today. So maybe that's another way that Teen Magazine sort of, like, um, like language has, like, issues have uh, persisted on the Internet. But, yeah, we always are like, how, how are we going to put a cute headline on this piece about, like, a brother dying of cancer? Like, how are we going to make this, like, something that – people are going to want to see next to their um, Oil of Olay ad or whatever.
1: Right. And that does, I mean, point back to we have to sell every piece on its own as a piece of content. You know, it needs to be marketed in some way. There's not this package that things come in that you got with a print magazine. And there are downsides to having to write in that way where every piece has to, Kind of earn its key.
0: yeah. But there are definitely, I mean, see, yeah. This is getting back to what you were saying in the other segment. It's it was cool in a way. I mean, I go back to how I thought about Sassy as like an ongoing story. Like some of the issues were. It's it's interesting to read. Like a, the, I don't have much nostalgia for paper, but like I do have nostalgia for the experience of a contained object landing on your desk that had like the best efforts of a group of people put together to try to like make their own individual voices into like a institutional voice. And sometimes that was like had terrible outcomes. (laughs) And then sometimes it just was like magic. And I think that's why people have nostalgia about some of these magazines is that maybe you, your like time when you were especially sensitive to that kind of magic like overlapped with a time when Cosmo Girl was like really hitting it you know <laughs> and like you got those like you got those issues and and you just were like in some way that you couldn't probably say you just could like recognize that it was working before we head out we want to give a few recommendations So, Heather, what are you loving right now? I want to recommend listening to
1: music. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so partly I just wanted to be a troll and be like, hey, music, have you heard of it? (laughs) But specifically, I want to recommend if you are a podcast listener, big podcast listener, like I am, forcing yourself to listen to music sometimes, which I really did have to force myself because I I don't do it because I'm just, I'm always behind on my podcasts and everything, but I've sort of developed this routine of like, maybe I'll listen to a few songs while I'm walking to the subway in a summer strut esque way to invoke the culture gap fest. And I just love it. And I had completely forgotten how fun it is to listen to music, which is so stupid and basic and One thing I particularly like to do is to endorse something also very simple is a shuffled playlist. So using the shuffle feature, I have a playlist on Spotify that I've been keeping since I started my Spotify account, whenever Spotify started, like eight years ago. And so it has so many songs on it that I forgot I added. And I just love when a song I haven't heard in a while or maybe even forgot completely comes on. And I'm like, why did I add this? What is this? I don't know. And then I get to the part that I really like or that just is very pleasing to my ear. And it makes me think, oh, that's why I added this. I love this song. Um, It's so cool to reconnect with whatever past version of myself is still enjoying the same sounds.
0: (laughs) Okay, so Rebecca, what about you? What do you recommend? Um your recommendation is like calling me out because I never listen to music on my headphones. I think what you're really recommending is listening to on your headphones. Cuz I listen oh, to Oh yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. I listen yeah. to it while I'm working, like sure, but when I'm like on my headphones like walking to work, I will not I, I will only listen to podcasts because I have so many to get through as you said. Um but my husband is always like you should listen to music it's so meditative and I'm like I don't have time for meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I yeah. I must consume content. But you're right, I really should do that. So I'm going to recommend a show called Victoria, which is a PBS show about the early life of Queen Victoria that I watched on Amazon Prime. And it has Jenna Coleman as Queen Victoria. Like, I don't believe in royals, and I have a hard time um, understanding how much I like it, but it's very... Beautiful. So, I, I didn't know that much about the life of Queen Victoria, which is ridiculous because I really like the 19th century and I've like weirdly learned a lot from watching Victoria and then while I'm watching it, like Googling and Wikipediaing the various figures, political figures that appear in it, which, as a method of sort of bringing yourself up to speed on a type of history, I don't really recommend, but in a way, <laughs> I kind of do recommend. <laughs> But the main thing about Victoria is it's beautiful. All the interiors and the dresses are really beautiful. And there's a really hot romance um, between Victoria and her husband, Albert, who's played by Tom Hughes, who's a lanky, serious German guy. And if that doesn't sound hot, like, I don't know. but You should watch it. His hair flops over his eyes. And he, like, kind of intensely leans in towards her ear quite a bit. And he also wants the world to be a better place. And he tries to teach her how to how to also work for that now again was queen victoria actually like a saint who did all the things that are depicted in the show like probably not but i could not stop watching this show and i'm sure i will keep on watching it when um whenever it returns which i'm not sure it will but um if it does i will be there um so i recommend that and then i also recommend the book ammonite by nicola griffith which i'm currently reading Um, which is about an anthropologist who goes to a planet um, where all the men have died of plague. And I'm reading it because I'm writing a piece about Why the Last Man, which is a show that is currently airing, and the idea of a place where all the men have died of plague. And Ammonite is like 70 times better than the show Why the Last Man. It's really good and smart, and I recommend it.
1: A planet where all the men have died of plague is just a great one-line pitch. Yeah. Um, That sounds wonderful. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also like it's like a couple of a hundred years after that's happened. So the women have like adjusted in various ways and there's different tribes that do different things and have like different traditions. Well, I haven't actually figured out the secret of how they reproduce yet because I think it's not totally revealed to me, but it has to do with meditation. Ah, speaking Mm. of meditation. Maybe I should be listening to music on my headphones. Then I'll spontaneously (laughs) reproduce, which would be actually unwelcome. So I'm (laughs) going to go back to my podcast. Okay, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth.
1: Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas, providing oversight and moral support.
0: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider supporting the show by joining Slate+. Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.